all-sufficient merit that is now our own, paid in full. No more debt I owe. There's just no better news in the world than that. No more debt I owe. That all of our sin, past, present, and future, removed, taken away, paid in full, and not only forgiveness granted through Christ, but acceptance, reconciliation. We are adopted into his family. That is just an overwhelming reality that should permeate everything that we do. And yet so often I think that our fears creep in, our doubts creep in, and we lose sight of that amazing reality. I wonder for you this morning, what is your greatest fear? There are so many phobias that are out there, fear of spiders and fear of heights, though I've always wondered about that one because I think everyone should have some sense of a natural fear, fear of heights. Right? It's, it's not good to just stare over the ledge of a mountain and feel nothing. That's a problem with your like amygdala. You've got an issue if you can't feel fear in that. We all have certain phobias, certain difficulties surrounding aspects of life where we might become anxious. But then there are those incredibly deep, emotional, even spiritual fears. I don't know if you are a parent here this morning, if you've had the fear of, will I be able to love my child in a way that speaks to their heart where I get them and I don't push them away? It's a fear that I have. We can have fears about a loved one not trusting the Lord alone for salvation and spending eternity separated from them. Or maybe you're here this morning and you have a fear that you've committed a sin so grievous that somehow what's true of that last song is not true of you. That somehow your sin has pulled you out of the grace of God. That somehow you have done something that his all-sufficient merit cannot cover. That somehow you have taken yourself, removed yourself, out of the grace of God. I've had many people over the years with that exact fear come to me and say, I'm scared that I have committed the unpardonable sin and I cannot be forgiven. Unpardonable sin, unforgivable sin. What is that? To some people, the phrase, the unpardonable sin is as scary and enigmatic as the phrase antichrist or tribulation. But as we'll see this morning, the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin is actually clearly defined by our Savior. And while it has a warning inside of it, there is immense hope inside of this passage as well. Hope in a place that maybe we would least expect it. So if you have your copy of God's Word, Mark chapter 3 is where we are. Mark chapter 3, we spent the last two Lord's Days just celebrating and enjoying our 10-year anniversary as a church, going back to the mission that we have as a church taken from the Apostle Paul's missions uh, that he was um, just radically um, focused on in the way that he went about his missionary journeys. And then we looked at his priorities for the church, and now it's our desire to live that out for the next 10 years and beyond. 
But here we get to gather again in our study of the gospel of Mark. We've been going verse by verse through this amazing gospel. And we find ourselves at the end of chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3, Lord willing, this morning. And then we will dive into chapter 4 in the coming weeks. We are in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. Jesus came home. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he's lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And Jesus called them to himself and he began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. And truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. These are the very words of our living, holy, and awesome God. Let's ask his blessing on our time this morning as we give careful attention to what he has said. Father, we come before you needy beggars. We come before you excited, knowing that you will feed, you will nourish, you will supply everything that we need in these moments with your word for our lives today. We trust that. We count on it. We come expectant to receive mercy and grace from your word. And so, please lavish that upon us. Not because of anything that we are or anything that we have or any way we could deserve it. We plead with you to be gracious. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law this morning. That we would see Christ. We would see ourselves in light of his glory and his goodness. Convict us, challenge us, comfort us, and conform us into the image of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You remember Mark is writing his gospel to prove who Jesus really is. 
who he claims to be in this gospel. Mark is writing to prove that's actually who he is. And so there have been many reactions, as we've seen in the third chapter of this gospel, there have been many reactions and responses to Jesus. He's made several claims. He's done several miracles. And we get to this place in chapter three where Mark is giving us, here's what the crowds think of him. Here's what the called, the the disciples think of him. And then here at the end of chapter three, we just finished that list of the disciples. Here at the end, we see three final categories in this chapter of reactions and responses to Jesus. Three different groups of people who respond and react to Jesus. And so we're gonna just take those three people groups as our outline this morning because each individual group tells us something about the way that we respond and react to Jesus as well. Group number one in verses 20 through 21 is Jesus's biological family. So this is group number one, Jesus's biological family. And each group has an aspect of what they think about Jesus, how they're responding to Jesus, what they, in their assessment of who he is, who they think him to be. And so the biological family of Jesus, number one, they believe that Jesus is crazy. Biological family, number one, this is the first group. They believe that Jesus is crazy. This is verse 20. Jesus comes home. He has chosen the 12 disciples. He comes home and there's a crowd gathered. Uh, We are not surprised by that. We keep seeing crowds around Jesus and there's a crowd to such an extent that they couldn't even eat a meal with Jesus. They couldn't even get in. There's a crowd that's surrounding his house. Probably this is the house of Peter up in Capernaum. And when his own people heard of this, and my Bible says his own people, your translation might say something a little bit differently. It's that word for kinsmen or uh, family related. My guess is, and most commentators would say, this is his actual biological family because they're gonna show up again in a little bookend in this section to highlight the way that they think, his own family, his own biological family, the way that they think about Jesus. So verse 21, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. His own family goes to take custody. My Bible says take custody. It's that word, your translation might say to seize him. It's the same word for arresting somebody. They're wanting to get him away, not because they love him and care about him, but because they think he's crazy. Literally, it says in the text, he is out of his mind. My Bible says he has lost his senses, but literally it's he's outside of his mind. This is what the Bible says in John 7 verses 1 through 5 about how the brothers viewed Jesus. It says that they wanted him to go to Jerusalem with them because they weren't believing in him. They wanted to parade him around because they weren't even believing who he claimed to be. Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters. Turn over just really quickly to Mark chapter six, verse three. Mark chapter six, verse three says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. So this is Jesus's, uh, we would say half brothers, right? Because um, they have the same mom and not the same dad. But they're biological half-brothers, and there are four of them, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And then it says, are not his sisters here with us as well? So sisters means there's at least two. So we know at least Jesus had four brothers and two sisters. But none of them at this point are believing in him. In fact, none of them will believe all the way up to the cross. At the cross, Jesus dies not knowing if any of his brothers or his sisters believe in him. 
And that's why he has to turn his mother over to John, the apostle, because none of his family is there to take care of his mom. And so he says to John, treat her as if you were my brother and her son. His biological family was not his true family, not his deep, spiritual, genuine family. This means that just being close to Jesus doesn't mean you're a disciple of Jesus. They thought he was crazy. This is so comforting on a very practical level. If you look at your family and you think family relationships are complicated and my family's crazy, I think all of us feel that. I think all of us think that. If you think that, if you feel that, Jesus says, I know what that feels like. He knows what it feels like to have complicated family relationships. I mean, just imagine. James, his half-brother, says, you know, mom told me that you said you're God. Why are you doing that? Who do you think you are? And Jesus lines it up. You know, here's the reality. Here's, let's open the scriptures. Let's talk about it. I am God. James goes, there you go again. Who do you, who do you think you are? And all the way through his ministry, they think he's crazy. The biological family thinks that Jesus is crazy. Then quickly, Mark moves to a second group of people. This is verses 22 through 30, and these are the religious foes. So we have biological family, group number one, who thinks Jesus is crazy. Secondly, we have religious foes who think that Jesus is cursed. They think Jesus is cursed. The religious foes show up in verse 22. The scribes come down from Jerusalem. This is an examination trying to find out Is Jesus who he claims to be? They come down from Jerusalem. They come down to specifically speak to Jesus and understand what he's doing. Speak to the crowds in Capernaum, in Galilee. They are on official religious business to go down and to see, is this man who he claims to be? He says he's the Messiah. Let's check and see. And Mark goes straight to, they were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul. But I want you to go to Matthew, just really quickly. Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, it'll give us the backstory for why this happens, why this event takes place. Because it didn't just happen in a vacuum. The religious leaders didn't just show up and say, oh, you're Jesus? Yeah, you're possessed by the devil. They didn't do that. What happened, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, parallel passage, gives us a fuller account. It says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. So this is a man, blind, mute, and demon-possessed. This is a a microcosm of the enslavement that spiritual darkness brings. And in the book of Isaiah, the Messiah is prophesied to heal these specific areas, those who were enslaved spiritually in demonic oppression, those who are blind and those who could not speak. And so what Jesus does is he takes this one individual and he heals him of all three of these issues. And in doing so, he fulfills a very clear messianic prophecy. This is an insanely messianic miracle. And that's why verse 23 says, all the crowds were amazed And they said, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And then the Pharisees hear this and they say, this man is possessed by Beelzebul. So here's what's happening. 
Jesus is surrounded by the crowds. The religious leaders are there to examine Jesus. Everybody knows that Jesus is under serious threat by the religious leaders. The religious leaders don't like him. Uh, They've already conspired of how to be able to destroy him. They want him dead. And they're trying to find a reason to allow that to happen. And so they show up. So the crowd's there. The crowd is loving Jesus. And then they see the religious leaders show up who they know do not like Jesus. And then Jesus, in front of all of these people, performs this insanely messianic miracle. And the crowds go, okay, time out. You religious leaders tell us that this man's not the Messiah. But did you see what he just did? I mean, chapter and verse in Isaiah, we can go to it. We can show you that's exactly what Messiah is going to do. But you're telling us that he's not the son of David. He's not the Messiah. And so what they do is they ask the religious leaders, can this guy be the Messiah? You're telling us he's not. He just did something that looks like he is, but we don't understand why you don't think he is. Help us here. And so the religious leaders huddle up. They get together. They figure out, we got to say something. And their answer is recorded here in Matthew. And then also go back to Mark chapter three, recorded in Mark. He is, this is verse 22 in Mark chapter three, he is possessed by Beelzebul. So this is their answer. The crowds go, look at what he did. If that's not messianic, we don't know what is. So how do you religious leaders explain to us that he's not the Messiah? Give us a good reason or else we're following this guy. And the religious leaders huddle up. We're in deep trouble here. Look at what this guy just did. How do we respond? And notice, by the way, that they do not respond by saying he didn't do the miracle. They cannot say he didn't do the miracle. The miracle is obvious. Everybody sees the miracle. They never deny the miracle happened. They have to deny the source of the miracle. They never question the accuracy of the miracle. They see the miracle happen. They see the truth. But faith is not the automatic result of seeing a miracle. That doesn't save someone. Miracles and experiences and encounters don't save anyone. Seeing is not the same as believing. And so they break their huddle and they say, here's our answer. He just did something that looks very messianic. We agree. But the power by which he did it is the power of Beelzebul. Beelzebul. Beelzebul, Beelzebub, they're similar words. They're sim- you can kind of interchange them. Beelzebul means Lord of the Heights. Uh, Baal, you can kind of hear that word Baal in there. Baal in the, the, the heights, the prince in the heights. And then Beelzebub became a mocking term of Beelzebul. Beelzebul means Baal in the heights. And Beelzebub means Baal, the Lord of the Flies. But either way, it's a reference to the prince of demons, to the devil himself. What they're saying officially as an official pronouncement of what the religious leaders think about Jesus is this. He is demon possessed and he's doing these things by the power of demons. That's their answer. That's their answer. Now, how does Jesus respond? Verse 23. I love this. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't respond in kind. He just simply uses logic. He points out their absolutely flawed reasoning. He gives four examples in very quick, rapid fire, successive order. He gives four very clear examples of why it makes no sense for Satan to be casting himself out. He says, number one, 
A kingdom divided won't stand. He starts in verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? And then he says in verse 24, uh, if a kingdom's divided against itself, it can't stand. Secondly, he says if a house is divided, it won't stand. If it has a messed up foundation, if it's unlevel, if it's unbroken, if it's uneven, it's not going to be able to stand. And you probably know that statement from Abraham Lincoln, right? He, he said that uh, a house divided against itself can't stand during the Civil War. Number three, if, a, 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 if Satan, if he is going to conquer himself, he's never going to win. He's never going to grow any ground. He's never going to gain any aspect of ground. And then he says in verse 27, with one last little parable here, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder the house. So he's using himself in this analogy as the robber going in to plunder the house. And so he says, if I'm going into the house of Satan, if this is his domain in the world, I need to first get him and attack him. I can't work in leagues with him. I can't be in connection with him. I need to bind him and then I can do the work that I've been doing. And, and he could say, look at the work I've been doing. I've been casting out demons. I've been healing people. I've been taking care of sickness and disease and all these different aspects of demonic oppression. And in order to be able to do that, I had to bind the strong man first. So he says, this, it doesn't make sense. He doesn't have to answer emotionally. He doesn't have to respond with this passionate argumentation. He just says, guys, this doesn't make sense. And then he says in verse 28, truly, I say to you, my Bible says truly, it's, it's the Greek word, amen. Amen and amen, I say to you, this is true. Amen is usually a word that is given in response to something. Somebody says something and you respond, amen, that is true. What you just said is true. But Jesus begins with it. And this is the first time that this construction of him beginning with amen uh, before he says something, this is the first time it shows up in the Gospel of Mark. And it really doesn't occur anywhere else like this in any other ancient Greek writings. You never see amen and then a statement. But the reason Jesus is saying it this way is because he's validating his own words because his words are truth. He says, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but he's guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. There is a warning here. And there is a hope here. First, the hope is clearly seen in verse 28. Any sin can be forgiven. Amen and amen. I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men. Even blasphemy to speak against Jesus, whatever blasphemies they utter. You think about what Peter does. Peter denies knowing Jesus three times, and yet that is forgiven. Think about what Paul tells Timothy, that if we deny him, he is faithful to us, even in our faithlessness, because he cannot deny himself. He's always faithful, even when we are faithless. So there's hope. There's great hope. But there's also a warning. He says, but, verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has Forgiveness, but you're guilty of an eternal sin. This is where that idea of unforgivable, unpardonable sin comes from. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? What it means very clearly is that these religious leaders have attributed the work of the Spirit to the work of the devil. 
They saw Jesus do a miracle. Jesus says, I did that miracle by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit did that miracle through me. And you're saying, I did it by the power of the devil. Therefore, you're saying the work the Spirit did was actually done by the devil. So attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why is it unforgivable? It's unforgivable because it is a conscious, clear, consistent rejection of Jesus by those who would know better. It's conscious. This isn't ignorance. This isn't, I don't understand what's going on. They know exactly what's going on. They saw this messianic miracle. They know what's happening and they reject it. It's clear. There isn't a doubt or a question or a wrestle or wondering. It's clear. There's no, I wonder if this could be the case. I'm confused and I'm going to go seek this out. No, it's a pronouncement. It's clear. We know what's happening. He's possessed. It's consistent. This isn't a mistake or a lapse in judgment for the religious leaders. No, their face is dead set against Jesus. And it's a rejection. It's a conscious, clear, consistent rejection of Jesus. It's a repudiation, but with disapproval and condemnation. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is willingly, knowingly, persistently attributing to the devil the works that the Holy Spirit had done through Jesus by the direction of the Father. It is a decided heart attitude that who Jesus is and what he does is evil. And it's a life lived with that reality in your mind. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is like a conspiracy theorist. You've ever talked to somebody who's a conspiracy theorist? No matter what evidence you give them, they will not believe you. If you give them evidence to show them, I, I don't think that your conspiracy is true, they will tell you, well, there's always evidence that you don't know, that we don't know. That's why conspiracy theories exist, because we don't know all the facts, and so you're trying to fill it in. And so no amount of evidence will ever convince them, will ever change their mind, because they will always hold out that maybe there's something we don't know. That's what this is. That's what these religious leaders look like. No amount of evidence will ever sway their opinion of Jesus. They have decided, they're done, this is it, it's over. It's deliberate, it's defiant, it's high-handed rebellion against God. It's determined disbelief. It's not so much an act as it is a complete disposition of your will. And it's unforgivable because those who are committing these sins don't go to Jesus for forgiveness. It's not that it's unforgivable like Jesus is powerless to forgive it. It's unforgivable because these people who are doing this don't go to Jesus for forgiveness. If you had something going wrong with you physically, you needed a surgical procedure, you find a doctor, and the doctor's willing to operate on you, and you think this is going to be it, he can heal me, he can fix the issue, and I'll be better. And then you find out that this doctor has actually, in performing surgeries, he has sadistically murdered his patients. Will you ever consent to be operated on by this doctor? No, of course not. That's why these religious leaders will never be forgiven because they look to Jesus and they say, well, of course we're not going to go to him for forgiveness. He's evil. He's demonically possessed. I'm not going to him for forgiveness. They could be forgiven if they went, but they're never going to go. That's why they will never be forgiven. 
If you deny the vehicle of forgiveness, namely the Holy Spirit at work in your life, then you're going to cut off yourself from the possibility of ever even being forgiven. So therefore, this isn't so much the unpardonable sin. It's the sin by which you place yourself beyond pardon. That's what it is. You are removing yourself from being able to be pardoned because you're removing yourself from the pardon itself. They weren't wanting forgiveness at all. They weren't wanting it, and therefore they're not going to get it. So we come back to the beginning of the sermon, practically, pastorally. I've had many people who have asked, have I committed the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin? I think it's a very important question. I think that it would be wrong for us to just keep moving in this narrative. I think we need to pastorally apply it. Lord willing, you will also receive friends who will ask you the same thing. What is the unpardonable sin? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? And you will be able to lead them through Mark chapter 3 and encourage them with the reality of what the unpardonable sin actually is. So let me give you two answers to that question. Have you committed the unpardonable sin? Two answers. Number one, there are some people who would say it's not even possible to commit the unpardonable sin anymore. It's very likely that it's not even possible to commit this anymore because very specifically, very technically, what is the unpardonable sin? It's saying, I saw Jesus do a miracle and I think he did it by the power of the spirit or by the power of the devil, not by the power of the spirit. Has anyone ever done that since Jesus has ascended into heaven? No, nobody can do that because they don't see Jesus doing a miracle and therefore they can't attribute the power that he did that miracle with to the devil. So there's some people that would say, in a very technical sense, you can't even do this anymore. You can't even commit this anymore because you haven't seen Jesus do a miracle and you can attribute that work, that power to the devil. I think that there's validity to that. I think that there's truth to that. But I will also say that every single person who is in hell has committed the unpardonable sin. Why? Because the unpardonable sin in a very technical, specific sense is looking at Jesus, seeing him do a miracle and saying, no matter what he does, I will never believe, no matter what evidence I've been given, I will never believe, but I will always attribute this to the power of the devil. I will always find a way to not believe and not go to him. So can that technically be lived out in that specific way anymore? No. But can the general principle of the heart of that attitude be lived out? Absolutely. That's why If you do that for the entirety of your life and you die in that state of determined disbelief, you will go to hell because you have not gone to Jesus for forgiveness. So, is it possible to commit the sin? If you say, I think I might have committed it, I think I would give those two aspects of that first answer. Number one, technically, I don't even know if you can actually live that out in its technicality, but the heart behind it is not going to Jesus for for forgiveness, which leads to the second point. The second answer that I would give, and I have given, and I've given it to some of you who have asked me. If you are concerned that you've committed the unpardonable sin, my guess is that you haven't. If you're concerned, why would you be concerned? Because you are saying, I might have fallen out of the grace of God and he won't forgive me, but I desire to be forgiven. Right then and there, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Why? Why? Because you desire to be forgiven. These religious leaders had no desire to be forgiven. If you're worried that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, I would say that your worry about that is one of the clearest evidences that you haven't. So most people who come to me and they say, 
I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I asked them, what have you done? And it's never something referring to determined disbelief. It's always some grievous sin, but something where I can show them right then and there, that's actually not the unpardonable sin. But if you're here this morning and you would say, I don't know, maybe I have. What I would tell you is, if you have had ever in your life a place and a state of determined disbelief where you say, I don't know if I believe that God is who he says he is. I would say right now, you do not have to harden your heart any longer. You don't. And if you choose right now to say, God, please soften my heart, I do believe you are who you claim to be then you have not committed a sin that has pulled you outside of the forgiveness of God. You have forgiveness readily available for you in Christ and you have not committed the unpardonable sin. So what should we do with this text? Well, I think that there is a warning here. There's a warning. I would say, and I would encourage, I would plead with you, where do you have in your own hearts the beginnings of determined disbelief? Be afraid If you find yourself listening to the truth, examining the truth, seeing the truth, hearing the truth, tasting of the truth, and then decisively rejecting and opposing it, that is the heart of determined disbelief, which is going to lead you down a path that if you live that way forever and die in a state of determined disbelief, then yes, you have not gone to Jesus for forgiveness. If you are there now, you have time to repent. If you're still alive, then you always have time to repent. But there's a warning. Hebrews chapter 6 gives us that warning. There's a danger about being around the things of God and having your heart hardened by those things. So be on guard for your heart hardening around the things of the Lord. Where do you begin to love sin and therefore lose feeling to the Spirit? If I can say it this way, beware of spiritual frostbite in your life. You've all experienced that, right? You go out into the cold and... Your, your fingers start losing feeling, right? You got to put them in gloves and then they'll warm up and it stings a little bit. That's a good thing. Often, I think spiritually, we think if we stop feeling, maybe that's a sign of maturity. No, it's not. You're getting spiritual frostbite. You are freezing aspects of your soul that no longer feels for the things of God. The lack of feeling is not a sign of health, but of death. If you do not Go near the fire of God's word. Put on the gloves of spiritual discipline. There may come a time that if you are out there long enough, you will not feel the cold anymore. But no one who is beginning to feel spiritual frostbite and turns and runs to get help from Jesus will ever be cast out. So if you're here this morning and you would say, I have a concern that my heart is beginning to experience spiritual frostbite in one area or another. My soul is beginning to shrivel with the effects of sin. I would plead with you, don't leave today until you've shared that with somebody. Walk in the light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Walk in the light. Have fellowship with one another. Let the blood of Christ cleanse you from your sin. And if you live in that state, that is not determined disbelief. That is not the unpardonable sin at all. Today is the day of salvation. Do not delay. Do not harden your heart. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. These first two groups of people are groups that should have have known who Jesus was. And Jesus should have been able to expect from them help and support. 
His biological family should have been there for them, but they weren't. They thought he was crazy. The religious leaders should have been there for them, for him as the Messiah, to buttress his ministry. But they've rejected him as cursed. They should have understood who he was, but they've completely missed it. And that's why what Mark's going to do is he's going to give us a little Markin sandwich. He's going to put family, religious leaders, family, and he's going to pack it together to show us in these three accounts that there are biological family members that say, you're crazy, Jesus. And then there's religious leaders who say, you're cursed by the devil. And Mark says, those two, though they sound very different, they actually come from the exact same heart. That's why he's putting these together. They come from the exact same heart. But the text doesn't end there. It ends in verses 31 through 35 with the third and final group. So we have biological family who thinks that Jesus is crazy. We have religious foes who think that Jesus is cursed. And then finally, number three, we have Jesus' true family. We have Jesus' true family who thinks that he is king. They think he's king. Verse 31, his mother and his brothers arrived. They're standing outside. They sent word to him. They called him and a crowd is sitting around him. And they said, behold, your mother and your brothers, they're outside looking for you. That's the same word for seeking, which is always in the gospel of Mark with maybe one exception. It's used 10 times in the gospel of Mark. Maybe one exception, but nine clear times where that word seeking is always in a negative sense. It's always seeking to arrest, seeking a sign to reject, seeking a miracle to test. It's always negative. Seeking to betray, seeking to destroy, seeking to control. They're seeking to control them. They're they're saying, you're crazy. We don't want you giving our family a bad name anymore. Please stop talking. Let's get you out of the crowd. Let's try and sober you up because you're crazy. They didn't believe him and they wanted to get him out of the picture. And so the crowd assumes in verse 32, here's your biological family. They have access to you that's a priority. They don't need backstage passes. Their family, they get priority over everyone else because of who they are. And Jesus responds with a shocking statement by saying, these aren't my family. You are my family. Biological family is good, necessary, and foundational, but it's not ultimate. Obedience to God rather than a physical biological relationship is the mark of your family membership with Jesus. The family as a whole has said he's mad. The religious leaders as a whole have said he's bad. And then here is another group of people that are looking at those two options and saying, we don't agree with either of these. We think he's king. And we want to submit to him as Lord. And so what's the opposite of the sin of uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What's the opposite of determined disbelief? It's joyful surrender. And that's what we see in this third group. Joyful surrender. And so Jesus says, who are, verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, because whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. These are shocking words to an ethnocentric, family-centered culture of that day. He says, there's no physical connection that is necessary to be in my family. There's no racial, cultural background necessary. Anyone can get in on this family. In these words, he says three shocking things. Number one, he says that biological family ties don't get you in. 
Biological family ties don't get you into the kingdom. Jesus' family, biological family, is on the outside looking in. That's what he's saying right now. They're not a part of my ultimate family. They're on the outside looking in. You don't get in because of your family, because you go to church, because you know someone who goes to church. That's not how you become a Christian. A second shocking thing he says is that biological family doesn't come first. Biological family doesn't come first. They mean something, yes, amen and amen. But in Christ, you have a deeper family than your own biological family. Jesus isn't saying your family is unimportant, but rather there is something even more important than your biological family. Family is a good gift that can so easily become an idol when you uh, prop them up on a pedestal and state that they're better than everything in the way that you live your life. God ought to give you meaning, purpose, satisfaction in life, not your physical, biological family. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 38. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Parents, can I just tell you right now, we do our kids no favors if we love them in such a way where we make them think that we love them more than we love God. God must come first. And so Jesus says biological family doesn't come first. And a third shocking statement, not only does Jesus say biological family ties don't get you in, secondly, biological family does not come first, but number three, God's family is open to everyone. God's family is open to everyone. Maybe you're here and your family has it all together. Everything's going well. Here's the challenge from Jesus. Don't place your hope, trust, and joy in your biological family. Place it in Jesus. Maybe you're here and your family doesn't know Jesus. You alone are the only Christian in your family. And you're struggling with how to please Jesus over your family. Mark chapter 3 and then Mark chapter 10, as we'll get to in the coming months, tells us you have a new family that's been given to help you, to encourage you, to be there with you and for you. And maybe you're here and you wonder, can I really be in God's family? The answer is yes, there is hope for you. You can be in God's family. He is gracious. He already said he'll forgive any sins. Just like the Apostle Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer and he forgave me and he adopted me. What greater privilege can there be than to hear the Savior of the world say, you are my brother or my sister. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus says, he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. You can be a part of this family no matter what your background is, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what's gone on in the past. He says, those who do the will of God, verse 35, they're my family. They're my family. Now, it'd be very easy to misunderstand this. It'd be very easy to think that I must obey in order to become a part of God's family. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Obedience doesn't originate that relationship with God. Faith does that. Obedience is a sign that faith has already taken place. Obedience is a sign that you are already a part of the family. I love the way George Whitfield says it. We could sooner climb to the moon by a rope of sand as we could be justified by our works. So we cannot get to God on our own works. But if, as Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love him and we're in that right relationship with him by faith, through grace, then obedience will be a sign of that reality. And so he says, those who do the will of my father, they're obviously already a part of my family. They do the will of God. 
That's a, a sermon all by itself. What is the will of God? There are so many places the Bible describes this is the will of God for you. But if we could boil it down to two words, the will of God is that you trust and you obey. Trust and obey. And Jesus says in the Gospel of John, those who do trust and obey, they do the will. They are slaves to Christ. Their will is dead. He is the master. He has bought us with so, such a great price that we are not our own. We are his. Those who are his slaves. Do you remember what he says in John? In the upper room discourse, he says, no longer do I call you slaves. But I call you friends. Jesus says, you are slaves but I don't call you slaves. I call you my brother and my sister. I call you my friends. There is no friend more comforting than the one that you don't feel like you have to constantly impress. We have a choice in the way that we live our lives. We can either be impressive to people or we can be fully known. <laughs> Those are kind of the only two options. You can either look impressive to people because you're hiding stuff, you are not fully transparent, or you can just let them know everything about you, be fully known, and probably seem a little unimpressive. But with Jesus, you can be fully known and fully loved. At the same time, that's the gospel. You are fully known and fully loved at the exact same time. The only people who don't seem to appreciate this reality is those who see their sin as not being that big of a deal. That's why the religious leaders don't go to Jesus for help because they don't see their sin as that big of a deal. They think that they're not in that much trouble with Jesus. As one author says, when we live our lives pretending that we don't have all that much to be forgiven of, pretending to be pretty put together or blaming our obvious lack of being put together on anybody and anything other than ourselves, the reality of friendship with God in Christ isn't all that spectacular a thing to us because, well, who wouldn't want to be friends with us? But when you see yourself in light of the gospel, you see yourself as the sinner that you are and you run to Jesus for forgiveness, and then he says, I've removed your sin. You are now adopted. You are my brother. You are my sister. You are my friend. And that changes everything. That's transforming grace. And Jesus would gladly have given that to the religious leaders. He would gladly have called them friends, but they didn't want it because they were too busy playing pretend with their religiosity. So if you're here this morning and you want to be in God's family, here's the amazing news. Jesus is accepting any and all applications. Sign up today. Be a part of his family now. Here's the catch. You have to tell the truth about yourself. And you have to tell the truth about him. You have to tell the truth about who you are and you have to tell the truth about him you have to be honest about your unworthiness to be in his family. You have no deserving of his relationship whatsoever by your own merit. The minute that we think we deserve friendship with Jesus is the minute that we destroy any possibility of intimately being acquainted with him. You put an obstacle between you and Jesus if you believe that you have merited that friendship, that closeness. But instead, 1 John, 
chapter 1, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and to adopt you into his family and to call you brother, sister, friend. If you look at yourself and you see unworthiness in your heart and you think, I don't want to share that with Jesus. I don't want to be transparent with him. I don't want to do that or with anyone else for that matter. I would encourage you. It's not your transparent confession of your unworthiness that repels Jesus. It's your religious pretense that you think you have it all together. That's what repels him. That's what removes you outside of that possibility of forgiveness. So come to him this morning. Don't pretend. Don't hide Let your guard down in his presence because he says, the one who does the will of God, they are my true family. Which group do you belong to? Do you think that Jesus is crazy? There's some aspect of what he says or who he is that you just kind of think, "Mm, that's a little too much. Maybe it's a doctrine that he claims. Maybe it's something that he has taught and you just say, I like everything about Jesus except for that thing. Is there something that you think I think Jesus is a little bit crazy. Maybe like the religious leaders, you would say, I think he's cursed. I actually don't want much to do with him at all. Or are you here this morning and you say, I know my unworthiness. I know my sin. And I know it has separated me. I know who I am. And I want to be honest with that. I want to be fully transparent because I want to be fully known and fully loved by the God of the universe. If you know that love, We love him, John tells us in verse John. We love him because he first loved us. And once we love him, we will keep his commandments. So therefore, if you know that love, it will transform you and it will bring you to a place where you are living out the will of God. Do you know him savingly? Are you a friend? He promises that he will forgive all of your sin. So come to him this morning. And if you do, I promise you, if you are fully known and fully loved, by the God of the universe who calls you brother, sister, and friend, that will make your soul soar forevermore. Father, we love you so much, and we are so grateful for your son who has done what was needed to get us into your family, what we could never do to become a part of your family. We would be just like the religious leaders who say, I don't want a part of it if it weren't for your spirit and your grace. Father, I pray for those in this room that are still on the outside. Maybe they think that they have access to you through their biological family or through their generational heritage, whatever it might be that they would hear. That doesn't get you in. Do you love me? Father, I pray that we would hear Jesus saying that to us this morning. Do you love me? Do you keep my commands because you love me? And I pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now has been seated at the right hand of God. He is the one that we turn our eyes to. We get off of our own hearts. We get off of our own sinfulness, and we stare at Christ, and we say, we want you. We want all of you. And therefore, we want to just be completely open and honest and transparent We don't want to pretend. We don't want to hide. We don't want to play. We want to be fully known because we know that by you and through you, we are fully loved. 
confirm these realities to our hearts as we fix our eyes on Christ through song. We pray in his name. Amen.